Today we start a new sermon series on 1 Peter. Excited to journey uh, through this book. If you've got your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there. If you don't know where it's at, it's going to be clear in the very back of your Bible. Small, short letter. And I'd love for you to turn there. And as you're turning there, uh, if you're new with us, if, if you've only been coming for a little while, one of the things you need to know about me, if you haven't uh, learned this already, is I love history. And you've probably heard me say this statement, I, I love history because I love um, learning and I love seeing how people respond to uh, circumstances. I love seeing how uh, people respond to um, their slice of history and how they live out um, their life. And uh, I say this statement, I've said this statement before, is the reality is every single one of us in the time that we are here on earth, we stand on the shoulders of those that have gone before us. We stand on their shoulders. That's true for all of the human race. But it's especially true uh, for us as disciples of Jesus. We, we stand on those that have gone before us. We stand on their faith. We stand on their um, model. We stand on their, um, their path that they walked. And they set for us an example. And uh, 1 Peter is written to a group of Christians um, that are in the midst of really seeing their faith being forged, their, their obedience being lived out in the midst of, of great difficulty. So today we're going to start in 1 Peter. I'd love for you to journey along if you don't have notes or a Bible. We've got them up on the slides. But it says this. Peter writes out, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Who is this Peter guy? When is this written? And what's the audience? What's going on in 1 Peter? Well, Peter is an apostle or disciple of Jesus. He's one of the 12 that were selected to spend time with Jesus, to follow Jesus, to understand Jesus, to be changed by Jesus, and to learn about Jesus' mission. Not only is Peter writing this, but he's writing this in in the time of probably 62, 63 AD. This is 30 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And he talks about Babylon, and he talks about writing uh, from Babylon. And why does he use the term Babylon? The reason why he's using the term Babylon is because it's actually Rome. And he's actually using code to make sure that whoever gets a hold of this letter probably doesn't understand exactly uh, where he's writing it from, why he's writing what he's writing. It's, it's an ability for them to make sure it doesn't fall into the right, wrong hands. And if it does, then there's really not a whole lot that happens from it. Why does he need to write in code? We're going to find out here in a minute why he's choosing to write in code. In addition to that, he's writing to Christians that are scattered. Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. All these places, all these different house churches that are taking place in this region. He's writing to them, and he's writing to them, helping them in their faith, encouraging them in their faith. What I find fascinating about the fact that Peter's writing this to a mainly Gentile audience. There may have been a little bit of Jewish Christians in the, the churches, but mainly it's a Gentile audience. And why does that matter? Why is that a big deal? Well, 
this is a little bit of a side conversation of, of really Peter's life. Uh, 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, what's been going on from the time that Peter saw Jesus die and resurrect? If you remember, it was Peter during the time of Jesus' death when Jesus was about ready to go to the cross. What did Jesus predict and that Peter actually did? What's he famous for? What did he do? He denied him three times, right? So Peter denies Jesus. He says, I'm going to go to die with you, Jesus. And he's like, no, you're actually going to deny me three times. And then Jesus restores Peter and becomes an amazing movement maker in the Jesus movement. Acts 2, church is born. Peter's the one that's communicating the message. Then about 10 years after that, as Jewish Christians are starting this Jesus movement, something pretty amazing starts happening. The Holy Spirit begins to inhabit Gentiles, non-Jewish believers. If you don't know, for us as Christians, we're, we're Gentile Christians most likely. And we stand on the shoulders of Jews. This started the movement of, 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 of the Word of God, right? Jewish faith. They became Christians, but then Gentiles begin to, to um, receive the Holy Spirit and and the church doesn't really know what to do with this because some people are saying they have to become Jewish first. They've got to become Jewish first if they're going to be a follower and disciple of Jesus. And there's a big conflict in the church. And it's in Acts chapter 15. Peter stands up. This is about 40 AD. Peter stands up in Acts chapter 15. It says this, is some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised, become Jews, and required to keep the law of Moses, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And so does Peter stands up and does he say these Gentile Christians have to become Jewish first before they follow Jesus? Is that what he says? He says, no, no. And it's from that moment on not only was the church exploding at the time, now it explodes even more because now there's Gentile believers that are following Jesus. But as you know, church, in the church, there's always conflict. You know that? Like the whole New Testament is written because of conflict. Relational conflict. Paul's writing because there's problems. Peter's writing because there's problems. They're all writing because there's problems. And sure enough, just as Peter's like, Jesus, I'll go anywhere with you. No, you're not. You're going to deny me three times. No, I won't. He does. And he gets restored. But look at Peter. He gets kind of off track, off alignment again. And this time, Paul calls him out in Galatians. Paul's writing a letter to the Galatian church. Because there are a group of people coming from Jerusalem up to Galatia and saying, you've got to become Jewish before you can become a follower of Jesus. And look what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2. When, when Cephas, or Peter, same guy, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Them fighting words, right? 
You ever been in church and had a guy get in another guy's face? Guess what? Happened in the New Testament. And if it happens here, guess what? Happened in the New Testament. Happens here. That's church, everybody, right? <laughs> I oppose him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James who used to eat with the Gentiles. Used to. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Relational conflict. <laughs> Division in the church. That should never happen in the church. No, that's like when you know you're in church, there's relational conflict <laughs> happening. Okay? When I saw... That they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force the Gentiles to follow the Jewish customs? Who we, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And see, and all the Jews knew that for the most part. They knew that it was faith that got honored. Because it was Abraham who, who left another land because of what? Faith. It's never been about works, but there's a group that said, no, it is about that. Relational brokenness. Peter. Peter who led the charge of the church is now going back on what he said in Acts chapter 15 and Paul says, uh-uh. I'm not having anything to do with it. Come on, Peter. Relational brokenness. It's in the church. It'll always be in the church. Why? Because the church is not a building. The church is people. And we all bring our brokenness into the church. We all bring our brokenness in relationship. Every single one of us brings our brokenness. The question is, will we be a people that fights for relationship Knowing that we're all growing. We're all in process. We're all pointing to Jesus. And some of us get off track and it requires another brother or sister to say, hey man, what's going on? You're not loving God. You're not loving others very well. What's going on? What's keeping you from trusting the gospel? When we experience relational brokenness in the church, we are in good company with the church in the New Testament. Now, how does it play out? Here's what I find fascinating. Uh, right after uh, Galatians, we've got a time frame of years that are taking place. And Peter's now writing, most likely, to the church in Galatia that's being persecuted and being scattered. And they're Gentile Christians. I want you to think about that. Paul calls... Peter out, and Peter gets back in alignment. He's starting to encourage Gentile Christians that are being persecuted from all the known region, but, but probably in Galatia as well, southern part of Galatia. We're going to take a look at it here in a second. So Paul's in, or Peter's encouraging the actual people that he was saying, oh, I can't eat with those people. Don't you think about that? That tells me we have a lot of hope. You and I, if we're off track, we've got a lot of hope. 
People should have hope in us that even though we're off track and not trusting Jesus in this moment, there's other people that are praying and that are encouraging and even correcting us. And we have hope because our story's not done. Look what, look what Peter says about these people that he wasn't eating with before potentially, but now what does he say to them? He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, and later on he says that they're a chosen people. This is language that we see in Genesis um, chapter 18, Genesis chapter 23, that, that God's people are chosen people. They're a royal priesthood. We're going to see him quote that next week. I'm not going to preach next week's sermon. Joe's doing that one, right? But he's saying, he's letting the Gentiles know, no, you're part of the family of God. You're a part of Abraham's family. You, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. You are a part of the family. Peter's not perfect. He is in process, but he is back in alignment as he's writing this letter to these people. And the idea of being chosen, that word, we can just like look at it and move on, but it's a powerful word, isn't it? I mean, the word chosen, I mean, it's, so what happened when, when two people choose to be married to one another, right? It's I choose you. And that's got significance, doesn't it? Because I know how jacked up I am. And the fact that someone would choose to love and marry me, my wife would choose to live her life, the rest of our life, married to me. That, that's special, isn't it? Special. And this is, this is language of relationship, of commitment, of marriage, of how God speaks about his children, that they're chosen. For, our, for some of you, like, you remember when we were kids? You remember what the best subject was? Recess, right? That was the best subject, right? <laughs> best subject. We go outside, and we play basketball, we play football, we play soccer, we play whatever, and we all line up, and you got the two leaders, and what do they do? They what? They choose. They pick teams. And some of you, you remember. You remember when you weren't chosen. You remember that? That sucked. That was horrible. And for the first time, we begin to experience maybe brokenness of like, what does it mean not to be accepted, not to be chosen, not to be a part of the team, or to be chosen last? And God says, not my family. I choose you. And I want you. And I've been pursuing you your entire life. And there are some people that don't want to be chosen. Right? That's maybe how you feel with God right now. Guess what? Even though you feel, God says, I still want you. I've chosen you. I've set you apart. I've made you part of the family. Peter goes on to say that these chosen elect Children that they're scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I want you to show you this on the map to give you an idea of where these people are at. The church in Galatia was probably part of the southern part of Galatia, but now Peter's writing to the northern, eastern portion of that area. If you go down south of Cappadocia, you're going to get Jerusalem. You see Ephesus, where Ephesians was written. Peter's over in Rome, over to the west, and he's writing to this region. A bunch of different house churches, a bunch of different areas over there. This is rugged country. This is mountain country. This is hill country. And it's where Christians would go when they were persecuted, and they would go into underground cities that are carved into this rock. This is a place where Christians go when it's bad. 
And during this time, it's bad. To give you an idea of why it's bad, Tacitus writes this. He's an historian of this time. He says, therefore, to stop the rumor that it had been set that, that he had set Rome on fire. Who's he? It's Emperor Nero. Emperor Nero set Rome on fire. Why did he set Rome on fire? He set Rome on fire because he wanted to rebuild the city and make it amazing. And his government was saying, no, we don't want to do that. He's like, fine, I'll just burn to the ground. They won't have a choice but to rebuild it. So that's what he does. And he blames it on the Christians. He blames it on the Christians. He says he falsely charges with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures, the persons commonly called Christians, who were generally hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate. I want you to notice this. This is a historian writing about Christianity. About, you didn't, there's no question that Christianity was around. Absolutely Christianity was around. He's saying this is, this is how they came to be. A criminal put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius, but the pernicious superstition. Superstition, he's right. Ah, it's not true. Repressed for a time, it broke out yet again. More people are coming to know Jesus. It was repressed, and now people are believing this superstition broke out yet again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also. Whether all things horrible and disgraceful flow from all quarters as to a common receptacle, and where they are encouraged. Accordingly, first those who were arrested who confessed um, they were Christians. Next on their information, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much on the charge of burning the city as of hating the human race. This is why they're fleeing. Because Nero is torturing, persecuting, killing Christians. I want you to think about this for a second. We talk about standing on the shoulders of those that have gone before us. I want you to think about where we stand. I just want you to reflect on where we stand. We have a whole Bible. God's Word. It's so readily available we can download it on our phone. This is 30 years after, roughly 30, 35 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Do you know what they had? If they were lucky, they could go to a synagogue and get partial manuscripts of the Old Testament. Probably usually like one scroll. They might have had a fragment of a letter, maybe a fragment of a letter from Peter or for Paul. They had this letter that was rotated around home group to home group to home group to home group. That's all they had. 30 years of history of Jesus dead and then alive. How many years of Christianity do we have in front of us? Roughly 2,000? We have a full Bible, full word of God. All they had was a message a little bit of scripture and they had relationships that's it and they were willing to die for a guy they believed resurrected from the dead we have so much more do we walk like they walk 
Do we walk with thankfulness with where we're at? Do we walk with the reality of what they've been through? And do we live with the type of faith that they lived with? These are a group of people that were convinced that Jesus died and resurrected. It's the only reason why they walked the way they did. That all of their hope was in the reality that Jesus really did die. Why? Because these people, how is it that my enemies now love me? How is it these Christians that we're killing, all we have to do is tell them, denying Jesus, and you'll be like, go. And they chose not to. Why? Because they actually believed with everything that they had that Jesus actually died and resurrected, and that their hope was not in this life, but in a man who gave them full and real life. We can actually go to the place where these Christians went. It still stands. This is where they went. This is in the hill country of Cappadocia, where Christians went and fleed persecution. They built cities into the hillside, and they lived. And I want you just to think, like, what went on in these rooms? People went in these rooms, and they, and they lived, sought shelter, they prayed together. They worshiped together. They probably prayed for friends and family members that in the midst of the, the government finding out what they were doing, fleed and left, and maybe some were left behind, and they pray and they worship and they wonder, are my family, are my friends, are they still alive? Where are they? Imagine what it meant like for them in the morning, in the evening, or during the afternoon, where they would come out and they would look out in the distance and they would see people coming and they would have to wonder in that moment, are these people coming because they are seeking refuge or are these people coming because they're gonna kill us? Is this person a spy that's coming to figure out what's going on so the government can come back in and take us and take our children and kill us? Who are they? This is where they lived. This is where they worshiped. And why did they do this? Because they remembered what their rabbi told them. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. It'd be like us packing up our stuff and going to our wilderness, Frank Church wilderness, to the mountains and going, how do we do this, Lord? How do we do this? Peter goes on to say, verse three, in the midst of this, he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Grief in all kinds of trials. Just to give you an idea, a little bit more of what's going on. Tacitus writes this. In their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport. Gladiator, you guys seen it? This is what he's about ready to describe. For they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs or nailed to crosses then set fire to and when the day waned burned to serve the evening lights we've got electricity what did they do 
They just crucified Christians, lit them on fire to light the city. Nero offered his own garden players, entertainers, for the spectacle and exhibited a Caesarian uh, game, indiscriminately mingling with the common people in the dress of a charioteer or else standing in his chariot. For this cause, because of this, listen to what the Roman people thought. They had compassion towards the sufferers. Though guilty and deserving of his exemplary capital punishment because they seemed not to be cut off for the public good, but were victims of the ferocity, ferocity of one man, Nero. I want to ask you this question. How do you respond to trial? Is it with praise? Is it with worship? Is it with opportunity? I know in my own flesh, like, I don't respond to trial with, with joy and with opportunity and with, with uh, tremendous faith. I actually respond to trial more like my five-year-old son, Theo. And I just be honest with you, like, we're about ready to get him off to kindergarten, and I'm worried about parent-teacher conference already, man. <laughs> I'm just like, man, this kid. I thought my firstborn was stubborn. This kid's got a whole nother level, right? When things don't go his way, when he doesn't get what he wants, when, his, when he thinks that's going to make him happy or peaceful, when he doesn't get it, he throws a fit. And oftentimes, when God doesn't give me what I want, doesn't give me easy circumstances, when I face trial, my flesh wants to throw a fit. And we have Christians that are showing us a different way. Peter's writing to a group of people that are showing tremendous faith and he's trying to tell them, don't give up. Keep doing what you're doing. What would it look like for us this week to sit in First Peter and to think about their shoulders that we stand on? What would it look like for us to live out our hope in Jesus in the midst of whatever trial we may be experiencing? And not only whatever trial that we may experience, but the trials that are still coming. Because they're coming. This is a map for us as believers as to how we're supposed to respond in the midst of trials. Peter says, these trials, these sufferings, they've come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's the forged, right? That your faith would be forged, refined by fire. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I want you to notice, he says, this trial, these sufferings, they've come to prove the genuineness of your faith. That trials come to prove the genuineness of your faith. Because no doubt there were others that didn't say, yes, I'm a Christian. There were others that said no and denied like Peter did. These things that come in our lives are given to us to forge a deeper relationship with God, with Jesus, and with one another. 
to deepen our faith. The pain that you experience is meant to deepen your faith and to prove your genuineness of your faith, to prove that you are who you say you are. Makes me think about a little bit the Olympics, you know? How many of you guys are enjoying the Olympics? Anybody? I love watching the Olympics, right? But one thing that I've never experienced one thing I love about the experience is, is the stories behind the scene, right? Of endurance, of, of continually fighting and battling and experiencing pain and heartache and, and pushing your physical body to places it's never been because you are an Olympian. That's what you do, right? I've never heard a story, though, of someone who shows up in the Olympics and just shows up and says, yeah, I've never trained for what I'm about ready to do, right? Just got done with my Doritos. I'm about ready to, you know, do the 100 sprints. You never hear that story, right? I mean, that'd be funny. That'd be awesome. Guy, guy just shows up, does his thing, wins a gold medal, right? That never happens though. Even though they stand with the medal on the podium, the genuineness of their faith is worked out through Repetition after repetition after repetition after repetition after heartache, heartache, pain, pain, pain. Because they're, they're showing they're an Olympian. And Peter says these opportunities, these trials are an opportunity to show the world that you are a disciple of Jesus. That the only thing that gets your allegiance is him. What would it look like for us to see pain, see trial, see suffering as an opportunity to show the genuineness of our faith in Jesus. And how does someone do that? How does someone experience tremendous trial, experience tremendous pain, and still move forward? Do you notice what Peter said? This is like the, if you got your Bibles, this is the one you want to highlight. This is the vision. This is the core. This is everything that Peter's trying to get them to remember, to remember, to remember, not forget in the midst of trial. In his great mercy, verse three, in his great mercy, he has given us a new birth, a new life into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. How do they face trial? How do they keep going? How do they see their family members die and still continue to trust Jesus and to never reject Jesus, it's because Jesus has given them a new life, a new hope, and it's only through the resurrection of Jesus. And they are putting all their chips into that. They're all in. And they're saying, I'm not going to choose anything else except for this hope. That Jesus really is who he says he is, and that he really did resurrect from the dead. And that my life is now hidden in his life. And that my hope is in what he's doing in his kingdom in this time and in the lifetime to come. They put all their hope into him and they're doing what Jesus said we would need to do if we were going to follow him. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his 
soul. What Peter's saying is the hope and the new life, it comes from the resurrection of Jesus and there will be nothing, nothing that will satisfy except for him. So keep putting your hope in him in the midst of great difficulty. A couple things I want you to think about as we wrap up today. First one is this. Suffering well with joy is a mark of a mature disciple. Suffering well with, the jo- with joy, right, is the mark of a mature disciple. Do you respond more like a five-year-old or do you respond like a mature disciple? When you experience great trial, great trial, and, and let's be honest, let's define great trial. <laughs> what did they experience versus what we experience? We stand on their shoulders. We walk like they walked. That's the call. As followers of Jesus. Seeing trials as an opportunity to display the genuineness of your faith doesn't come naturally. My flesh doesn't say, oh boy, let's do this. Right? Instead, my flesh says, Lord, can you make it easy? Can you make it easy? Do we see it as an opportunity instead of a burden? How we respond to trials reveals what we care most about in this life. What do we care most about? Is it Jesus in his name and his glory and his kingdom or is it our comfort? What do we care most about? Only through the resurrection of Jesus does it make sense to see suffering as an opportunity. If Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, Paul says we're all a bunch of fools. So it only makes sense if we're trusting in Jesus. And lastly, the resurrection of Jesus, it is our only hope. And it's it's what we as Christians stake our claim on. As we get ready for communion, I just want to tell you guys this quick story. I tell you, you guys are fully aware, we've experienced um, quite a bit of pain, heartache as a people as a nation and I got the opportunity this last week to go up to North Idaho with pastors from all across the United States to gather and to worship and to pray and to spend time together talking about how we're doing and to be really real and honest about how we're doing and I got to hear just this continually the same story (laughs) Pastors are tired. Everybody's tired. People are angry. And as pastors talk about how tired they are, struggling, um, I got the opportunity to, to sit with them and to listen to them and to cry with them pray with them and they did the same for me and vice versa but almost every single pastor also said this as they talked about the weight of leading in this time and in this moment they'd all all, almost all of them would say this but God's doing stuff and they would share about how 
their churches exploding. They talk about more and more people coming to know Jesus. Children, teenagers, young adults, adults, older adults, like people coming and hurting and for the first time understanding there is nothing in this world that offers hope except for Jesus. And they shared that in the midst of great difficulty and pain and heartache, there's also a tremendous amount of movement that God is doing in hearts of people. That the soil is getting turned up and it's painful, but God is preparing a harvest of people. And we're seeing that in our church. We're seeing nine people that, I mean, we're, we're two weeks away from river baptisms. Nine people already like, I'm ready, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to follow Jesus. I'm ready to be obedient. And I'm believing that no matter what happens in the future, without a doubt, there will be trial. And without a doubt, there will be more harvest in the midst of great difficulty. And my plea to us, would we be willing to show the genuineness of our faith in the midst of great trial? Would we be disciples of Jesus that choose not to shrink back but to press in in the midst of great trial knowing that we don't live for our job we don't even live for our family we live for one and it's Jesus. And how amazing is it going to be on that day when it's all done away with that he will look to us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And we will share in his glory. And it, as John said a couple weeks ago, that sharing in his glory, that it would, nothing would compare that we will look back in the midst of trial. We will look back in hard things and we go, nothing compares to the glory of Jesus and it'll be worth it for all eternity with him. So as we get ready for communion this morning, I just want to invite you to bow your heads and I want you to think about two things as we get ready to go to communion. Number one, what is Jesus saying to you? about being a disciple of Jesus? What is he asking you to surrender? What is the next step he's inviting you into? And the second thing is, who do you know that's hurting? Who do you know that is lost? That Jesus is calling on you to love and to be in relationship with? Who's the person that he's calling on you to minister to?
pray about those two things and we'll get ready for communion.